A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm coming to you from high on a hill in the Derbyshire countryside. And what I can see is the most amazing wall and behind it, as I enter through the gatehouse, the magnificent Hardwick Hall. One of the most perfect of all the Elizabethan prodigy houses. It's been described as the supreme triumph of Elizabethan architecture. This magnificent building with three stories and it's symmetrical, it's perfectly symmetrical. It's in a kind of golden stone. And it is impressively tall, particularly for the Tudor period. It was these magnificent, I mean, really vast windows with diamond pane glass. Glass was very much valued by the Elizabethans and the Jacobeans as a kind of status symbol, showed off your wealth. And there are six great turrets and the amazing thing about these turrets is that depending on which angle you look at this building, the place looks entirely different. At the very top between the turrets, there are roofs that you can walk on, if you're lucky enough, and the balustrade are topped with a coat of arms with stags, and they're surmounted with initials E and S under a coronet. And these are the initials for Elizabeth Countess of Shrewsbury, better known to history as Bess of Hardwick. And she built this new hall a stone's throw away from the old hall where she had been born in around 1527 to John Hardwick and his wife Elizabeth. So she's a daughter of a kind of minor landowner. We need to think of her as being a member of the gentry, parish gentry rather than county. And I think one of the most important and formative experiences of her youth was that her father died when she was seven months old. And as a result of this, his lands were seized. The lands weren't also in her mother's name. So the lands were seized and administered on her brother's behalf by the crown through the office of wards. So there's a financial instability, a period of financial instability in her childhood. And I think that was very important. And in her 60s, when she was a widow, she began to build Hardwick New Hall, this magnificent building here with the wealth that she had acquired over four marriages. Building work started in November 1590, which is the same month as she buried husband number four, George Talbot, Earl of Shrewsbury. A marriage that had started happy but had become deeply troubled as time went on. And she moved in around her 70th birthday. And I must say that by the end of the 16th century, she was the second richest woman in the country after Elizabeth I. 
This is one of four great houses she built. She refurbished Hardwick Old Hall, this Chatsworth, and she is a sort of builder on a scale that no other woman has been in British history. And this building is a celebration of her extraordinary achievements. It is a testimony to a woman who survived all the restrictions on female power in the 16th century. Well, here I am in the hall itself, in the entrance hall, which is at the centre of the building. And I'm very lucky to have access to this before it's open to the public. So apart from a few noises in the distance, it's almost entirely silent. <laughs> it's amazing to be in a space like this. And here's Bess herself. There's a picture of Bess as we come in, Countess of Shrewsbury. She is wearing her Countess's coronet, which has got pearls on it and what look like rubies and it's an ermine faced gown of black and strings of pearls and a white ruff and she has pearl green eyes and very red hair. Why did everyone in the Tudor period seem to have red hair? I don't know. Maybe it was just fashionable to be depicted so. Anyway, so here we are. This is the servants hall and an entrance hall. And the way this place is constructed is that there are three floors, the kind of ground floor essentially for the servants, the first floor for Bess and the family rooms, and then the floor above that for potential royal visitors as state rooms. There's a sense in which order and degree in society is represented here in stone. But this entrance hall that I'm standing in is easily the height of a double-storey house. I mean, it's most extraordinary. And above the fireplace is this absolutely huge pass-to-work overmantel, which has the coat of arms of Bess, the coronet, on either side, basically full-size stags with real antlers, which is the Hardwick coat of arms. Each stag has a collar of wild roses or eglantines, which is the Hardwick family crest. And actually, white eglantines, which were a symbol of chastity, were adopted by Elizabeth I. So maybe there's something in that as well. Let's go through. There are all sorts of embroideries here. Panel here of work from the late 16th century, embroidered with E and S. I think Bess employed an embroiderer. Certainly something she cared an awful lot about. Now, I've come into one room that shows two hangings. These used to hang in the entrance hall, and they are Penelope and Lucrezia. So both women are mytho-historical characters of the ancient world who are associated with fidelity. So Penelope is the faithful wife who waited patiently for her husband's return from the Trojan Wars. And this amazing piece of embroidery, which is twice my height and sort of 3D, it has depth as well as colour, is inscribed with the words perseverance and patience in Latin. And the other one, Lucrezia, of course, is a model of moral and intellectual character, often held up as an example of chastity and liberality, so generosity as 
her qualities named here. And these are clearly people that best felt to be inspirational or examples to her. These are really rare applique hangings that survive from Bess's time. Quite extraordinary. Right, now I'm going up the stairs. And there are lots of stairs here. <laughs> Amazing wide staircase. Tapestries hanging on either side. Oh, these were added later. As I climb up to the state rooms, let me tell you about Bess's life. So she was first married to Robert Barlow or Barley when she was a young girl. She's probably 15 or 16. So this is May 1543. And he died in December 1544. And Margaret, Duchess of Newcastle, later wrote that Barlow died before they were bedded together, they both being very young. So she's a widow when she's still a teenager. And then she makes her second marriage to William Cavendish. Now, it's interesting because they were married at the Grey's house, of Bradgate House in Leicestershire. We have a memorandum from Cavendish which says that they married on the 20th of August in the first year of King Edward the 6th, at 2 o'clock after midnight, which I find interesting. The times that people got married. I know it happened in the morning normally under canon law, but 2 o'clock in the morning seems quite extreme. Anyway, Bess was probably a lady-in-waiting to Francis Grey, who was Marchioness of Dorset. And Cavendish was some 20 years her elder. And they almost instantly start to produce children. Their first child, who was named after Francis Gray was born 10 months after the wedding, and then over the next 10 years, they have children at almost yearly intervals. Their second child, her daughter Temperance, seems to have died when she was around four months old. They have three sons, there's probably a miscarriage along the way, three more daughters. And their last daughter, whom they called Lucretia, in fact, also died in childhood. Bess also had stepdaughters. When Cavendish came to the marriage, he brought Catherine, who was 13, Anne, who was nine, and Mary, who was 10. So she gains, in the end, having lost two of her own daughters as infants, which must have been utterly heartbreaking, two stepdaughters and six biological children. And the thing to note about Cavendish is that Cavendish had enriched himself working for the Court of Augmentations that was managing the dissolution of the monasteries. And so had amazing lands. And Bess had obviously recalled her childhood experience all the properties that Cavendish and Bess owned were put into both names for both of their lives, so that on Cavendish's death, everything remained Bess's for her lifetime and was only entailed on their eldest son after her death. They bought Chatsworth in 1549, and that was in both of their names. And Bess does huge amounts of work on Chatsworth, the old house, not the one you can now see, over the next sort of 18 years. And then 10 years after they had married, Cavendish died in October 1557. So by this point, Bess has lost two husbands and two children, and she certainly felt great misery at his death. And although he left her with these lands, he also left her with huge debts for over £5,000, £5,237, debts to the Crown, and she had to lobby Parliament, which is quite extraordinary. There weren't many, if any, non-royal women doing this at this time to argue that she should not have her lands taken from her in order to pay those debts. 
Right, here we go, into the high great chamber. Right, having walked up all those stairs, it's amazing to think that Bess moved into this place when she was 70 years old. I am now in the high great chamber. And this is an enormous room. I mean, you could basically put a sort of five bedroom house in here. We know that Bess asked her son, Charles Cavendish, to send her the measurements of the great chamber at Tibbold's, which was William Cecil Lord Burley's grand house, in fact, the grandest and biggest house in England. She wanted to know the size of the chamber there, and she built hers bigger. I mean, it's absolutely vast. The scale of this place is that of a palace. It's all quite low lighting in here, partly because the visitors aren't here yet, and also partly because there are amazing things to be conserved. In here, we've got tapestries on the walls, and we have an incredible plasterwork frieze. This shows, in 3D and kind of relief, Diana, the hunter, the virgin goddess. I suppose it's an allusion to Elizabeth I. And lions, and elephants, and deer, camels, <laughs> trees all over it, and there's very much a sense that it's showing country life. It was modelled by Abraham Smith, decorated and completed around 1599, two years after Bess moved in. And the tapestries that I'm looking at here have also hung here since 1601. An inventory was taken in 1601, so we know exactly what was in this space, a table at which Bess could dine with her guests. So I've essentially walked into a room that hasn't changed that much since the first year of the 17th century. Isn't that amazing? There's amazing wood panelling where there are not tapestries, and there's also here an eglantine table, which was probably commissioned to commemorate the triple marriage. So I need to bring you up to date on what happened after William Cavendish died. So Bess was a widow for two years, and then married for the third time to William St. Lowe. The couple didn't have any children. They seemed to have been very affectionate, though, he refers to her as my own, more dearer to me than I am myself. He signs off one letter, your loving husband with aching heart until we meet. Pretty romantic. He also knew that she was a force to be reckoned with. He calls her the chief overseer of his works. And he's a rich man. He sends her amazing gifts, rarities, delicacies like lemons and olives and frankincense, the latest in ladies' headwear. And because of St. Lowe, Bess went to court, probably became one of the ladies of the Queen's Privy Chamber. And St. Lowe obviously came to trust her because when she was widowed for the third time in 1565, rather than certain lands that are called the Westlands going to St. Lowe's brother, Edward, they went to Bess. And the St. Lowe family criticised Bess for saying that she had exercised undue influence on her husband, though what that means, really. Your guess is as good as mine, but they thought that she had set out to get the St. Lowe inheritance, and this kind of myth of the rapacious Bess stays with her throughout history. But by the time he dies, she's got the Cavendish estates, including Chatsworth, she's got the St. Lowe lands, she's becoming a wealthy woman, she's got an income of over a £1,000 a year. Historians over the centuries have really unfairly characterised Bess as a shrew. And it's partly because of what the St. Lowe family have to say about her, and partly, as we'll see, because of the fallout of her fourth marriage. So there's this idea of her as an ambitious dynast who made a career out of marriage. That's the sort of stereotype of Bess. 
Recent historians, though, like James Daybell and Alison Wiggins, have argued that actually she was a serious political operator and that the reason these men left their states and her care is that she's a very serious businesswoman, a gift for managing finances. She's good at managing people. We've got lots of signs of her generosity, as well as her ability to speak frankly to people when occasion demanded it. And there's very much a sense that she has this reputation because she was a woman, because she was a hard-headed woman who operated very effectively running these businesses and as a builder, which essentially wasn't what people expected of women at the time. And so she's been castigated ever since. I mean, people have called her a termagant because of the way that Shrewsbury describes her speaking of him. But it does seem to me terribly unfair I should say something about why she was building this place. I mean, one explanation for these grand rooms has been that Bess had ambitions for her granddaughter. So Bess's daughter, Elizabeth, married the grandson of Henry VIII's elder sister, Margaret Tudor. And this is a marriage between Charles Stuart and Elizabeth Talbot that Bess organised. And that meant that with Elizabeth I unmarried... The next in line to the throne, and obviously, you know, she never declared who would be her successor, but the next in line to the throne was Mary, Queen of Scots, and after that, her son, and then Charles Stuart. Charles Stuart had one child, Arbella. Arbella Stuart was born in 1575. Charles Stuart died in 1576, which meant that Arbella was third in the line of succession after Mary, Queen of Scots, and James VI. And... There was a school of thought that said that Scottish-born candidates should be ruled out of the line of succession, which would put Arbella next in the line of succession after Elizabeth. In 1582, Bess's daughter, Arbella's mother, Elizabeth Stuart, died, and Bess took on the care of her orphaned granddaughter, and at one point actually tried to marry Arbella to the Earl of Leicester's son by Lettuce Knowles. So there's a sense that Arbella was seen by some people as being a kind of queen in waiting. And perhaps these rich rooms are a testament to that dynastic position. Although also it should be said that looking at this frieze of Diana, this is clearly a statement of loyalty to the queen. And if Elizabeth I had ever come up here, which Bess clearly hoped she would do, she would have seen that Bess was not putting forward a rival candidate for attention. And because she's at court, she meets George Talbot, Earl of Shrewsbury. And they marry in 1567, a marriage that lasts 30 years. And it starts happily enough. I mean, he's one of the richest men in England. He's a member of the Privy Council. He's Lord Marshal. So therefore, he's fourth in the hierarchy of the Queen's advisers. And they mark the occasion of their marriage by marrying four of their children as well. And this Eglantine table was probably commissioned to mark that. It's a beautiful piece of work. It's inlaid with musical instruments and we've got cards and backgammon, bits of musical notation, ink horns. And the marriage, of course, was between Bess and George Talbot, Earl of Shrewsbury. It was also between her son, Henry Cavendish, and Grace Talbot, and her daughter, Mary Cavendish, and Gilbert Talbot. You can even see the notes here. I mean, you could play a piece of music. You can see the lyrics. Oh Lord, in thy truth, my trust is. That's the lyrics there. 
It wasn't just a moment of religious devotion for me. We're about to witness the first coronation at Westminster Abbey in 70 years. And Gone Medieval from History Hit is your perfect companion for the event. From the earliest English coronation records. To what the royal regalia used in the ceremony means. From the surprising origins of the recognition part of the service. To the lavish banquets that took place afterwards. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And on Gone Medieval in April... We'll be exploring the medieval origins of this feast of pageantry. We'll try to pick out the key moments for you to watch and trace their origins back into the mists of time. We've got some great guests and fascinating topics to lift the lid on a moment when, let's face it, people all around the world will have gone medieval. Subscribe and follow Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm now coming to the Long Gallery, and it is the most extraordinary space. It's apparently the largest surviving Elizabethan Long Gallery. Not technically the longest, but you could put a whole row of terraced houses in here and have space to spare. It is amazing. It has a plasterwork ceiling, which I believe is later, and it has tapestries on the walls. These came from a spending spree, a shopping trip that Bess went on in the 1590s with Arbella. These had belonged to Sir Christopher Hatton, who died in 1591, and Bess paid £326 for these tapestries. They're of Gideon and his triumph over the Midnights. And they had been at Holmby House in Northamptonshire, which was one of the grandest houses. 
in England. And so there's very much a sense that Bess is competing with the finest in the country, with her high great chamber, with the tapestries here, now changed that so they had her coat of arms on instead of his. They're Flemish and they've been made in 1578. And we know that in 1601, there were something like 37 portraits hanging on them. Today, there are many, many more. And the first one is drawn to is Bess as a widow, magnificently dressed in rich black. Got such a sort of sensible looking face. You can't read character into 16th century portraits, but it's very tempting here. She's wearing a black velvet bodice with wide sleeves and rows and rows of pearls and a magnificent ruff and that fashionable hair of hers. And here are all the people she knew. I mean, amazing picture of her second husband, a picture of William St. Lowe and some of the movers and shakers of the Tudor court. We've got Burley here. We've got Bess here as a young girl. This must have been probably at some point around 1560, sort of pretty redhead. Lovely cloth of gold sleeves with red embroidery on them, holding gloves, lots of rings on her fingers. And this is very much the style of the 1560s with a kind of gown that's trimmed with ermine and done up with aiglets. You can see that she was quite a catch. We've got young James VI of Scotland. There are so many pictures in here I'd like to tell you about, but I'm going to confine myself to telling you about a picture here of Mary, Queen of Scots. It's an almost identical one up in Edinburgh at the National Gallery here, and it's Mary with her hand resting on a table covered with a red cloth, standing in front of a beautiful green cloth, and she is dressed in her widow's black and wearing a crucifix, wearing her rosary beads, wearing a kind of white lace headdress and beautiful ruff. And I mean, this is a very fine picture. It says that she is 36, that she had been captive in England for 10 years at the time this is painted. And right next to it is Arbella. This is Arbella, 13 years old in 1589. So she's under Bess's charge. She's wearing the most gorgeous white dress and pearls around her wrists and her neck and dripping from her ears and the top of her head. I mean, she has got long red hair that's loose because she's a young person, a dog by her feet, books at her side. And I think there is a sense of iconography here that she represents a replacement to Elizabeth I. And she's also given the title of Countess of Lennox, which she claimed. It's an allusion to her claim to the Scottish earldom and the lands of Lennox, which had been taken from her by her cousin, King James. Finally, there is also a picture here of Arbella as a young child, maybe two or three years old. She is holding a doll dressed in proper Elizabethan clothes with hair, if you look closely enough, that looks quite like Elizabeth I. And this is a reminder that Bess was looking after Arbella when she was orphaned at a young age and bringing her up in full knowledge of the fact that Arbella had this potential to one day be queen. Normally speaking, there's also another portrait in this long gallery of Elizabeth I, a glorious portrait where she's wearing the most extraordinary dress with symbols of fertility and even sea creatures on it. But I think that is currently traveling around the States. Elizabeth I is on tour.
come now into the withdrawing chamber. I guess you withdraw from the long gallery. Amazing tapestries everywhere. And above the mantelpiece, there's an alabaster relief picture, which is of Apollo and the Nine Muses, which came from Chatsworth in the 1570s. Best does seem to have identified strongly with Shrewsbury. I guess that's the moment to talk about what went wrong with the Shrewsburys. I mean, the trouble seems to have started as early as 1577, although if this is painted in 1570, perhaps that's evidence that the troubles were starting even earlier. We know a servant at the marital home at Sheffield, they had many houses, said in the letter to Sir Francis Willoughby that this house is a hell, and that's in 1582. By 1583, Bess had left Sheffield for Chatsworth, and Shrewsbury tried to claim Chatsworth under the terms of their marriage settlement in July 1584, mustered a force of 40 men and rode to Chatsworth to attempt to claim the property as his own. And Bess is evicted and Shrewsbury had her son, William Cavendish, thrown into Fleet Prison because of his attempts to resist. Basically, Shrewsbury was convinced that Bess and her children were trying to bleed him dry. It's certainly true that Bess had been buying lands in Derbyshire in the name of her sons because, for example, she purchased the family manor house at Hardwick, Hardwick Old Hall in 1584, in her son William's name, because being married, she couldn't hold property in her own name, but she clearly doesn't want to put it in the name of her husband. And Shrewsbury is harsh on Bess. He says that she scolds like one from the bank. He says that she's wicked and she rules and overrules him. He accuses her of an insatiable and greedy appetite, says that no curse or plague on earth could be more grievous than his marriage. Whereas her letters to him, by contrast, very much are unfailingly placatory and reasonable. He's wildly abusive in what he writes to her. She says, I know your hatred must grow of something, but I don't know how I have deserved your indignation. There's certainly an element in which she is aware that what she writes could be read, and she doesn't want to write anything that could be used against her. She's very much conforming to female conventions of obedience and submission. But there's nothing to show that she takes any active part in retaliation against him for the things he does to her. Now I'm walked through into the green velvet room, so called because of the magnificent 18th century green velvet bed. Again, the wall is surrounded by the most amazing tapestries. These are actually late 16th century Flemish tapestries, also from Hatton, and they are on a simplified scale. They're the story of Abraham, the tapestries that are at Hampton Court. They have amazing colour, actually, marvellously fresh colour. So if you want to see what tapestries looked like, or something more of what they looked like in the 16th century, these are ones to come and see. The blues and the reds are so bright. And there's a picture here by Titian with his great friend Andrea de Franceschi, the Grand Chancellor of Venice. You have to look out for this one because it's sort of in the dark in the corner here, but it's amazing. Very vivid faces. And now we come into the room known as the Mary Queen of Scots room. There was an idea for years that Mary Queen of Scots had been held here at Hardwick. She never was. Over the doorway is a semi-circular panel which has the Scottish arms and MR for Maria Regina. So that's Mary Queen. And above it, it says Mary Stuart, Balagast de Dieu, Reine d'Ecosse, Douré de France. Mary Stuart, by the grace of God, Queen of Scotland and Dowager Queen of France. And this came from Chatsworth. Bess brought it from Chatsworth. 
And I think that's really interesting because it demonstrates that although Mary, Queen of Scots, was a burden on the couple, there was also a certain honour involved in being asked to look after her for 15 years. And though the relationship between Bess and Mary became troubled, there was a point at which Mary was an honoured guest. And I feel like this is testament to that. Just outside this room, there are embroideries done by Mary herself. And over at Oxborough Hall in Norfolk, there are embroideries that Bess and Mary are believed to have worked on together. More of those applique tapestries of virtuous women here. And here we go into the blue room. 16th century tapestries from here, from Brussels. I mean, you're getting the impression, right? Every room here is absolutely dripping with them. A chimney breast here with an alabaster overmantle bought from Chatsworth in the 1570s. And a cipher with the initials E, G and M. So E and G, of course, are Elizabeth, Bess and George. And M must be for Mary, Queen of Scots. Because, I mean, there are essentially three people in their marriage. So the thing we have to say about Mary, Queen of Scots is that from 1569 to 1584, Shrewsbury was responsible for looking after Mary, Queen of Scots, who was, of course, a national security threat. There were endless plots and intrigues around her. And she was moved between Shrewsbury's various properties some 46 times, each time involving around sort of 200 people, Mary had technically 30 servants, but often in practice more like 50, about 40 soldiers, you know, supporters and hangers-on. And Elizabeth I paid Shrewsbury expenses towards this, but she paid about half of the actual cost, and she only paid that intermittently. So the Earl of Shrewsbury was permanently out of pocket and permanently aggrieved about it. And there were rumours that Shrewsbury had an affair with Mary, Queen of Scots. It seems that Mary and Bess were quite close at the beginning of the marriage, but I think she comes to suspect Mary too. And Mary has her own reasons for disliking Bess after a time because of the marriage that Bess has engineered between her daughter and Charles Stuart, which feels like it's contesting Mary's own claim to the English throne after Elizabeth's death. And this overmantle here in the Blue Room kind of speaks to this theme because it tells the story of Tobias and Sarah. This is from the Apocrypha, from the book of Tobit. So the story goes that Tobias set out from Nineveh to Medea with his dog and on the way acquired a fish, a magic fish, and a servant who was actually an angel in disguise. And in Medea he was staying with a cousin and discovered that his cousin's daughter, Sarah, was a great heiress who was possessed by a devil and had so far destroyed seven husbands on their wedding nights. And the angel advised Tobias to burn the heart and liver of the fish to destroy the devil that lived in Sarah, which worked, and then Tobias marries Sarah, and it's a great success. So this was made in the 1570s, and one can imagine, I suppose, that it's something sort of playful, that here's a much-married woman who'd become rich and thought, or wanted it thought, that her last marriage would turn out to be successful. It's obviously another story that Bess takes great comfort in. But as I say, it also has these initials, these three initials intertwined. And we very much have this sense here that 
the burden of looking after Mary, Queen of Scots, even if Shrewsbury and Mary weren't having an affair, which seems unlikely to me, was detrimental to the marriage. And it becomes a, a matter of national importance. The Queen actually writes to Shrewsbury saying, we've long desired for your own good and quiet that all matters between the Countess, your wife and her sons and you might be brought to some good composition. An inquiry is set up in 1584 to arbitrate between the warring couple. We know that Bess sends lots of letters to people like Francis Walsingham and to Burley, begging for their intervention to the Earl of Leicester. And a second inquiry takes place. It says that the Earl must take Bess back under his roof. In 1587, the courts award Bess Chatsworth and a sizable income from her husband. I think it's 2000 a year, and she's to pay him 500 a year for rents on lands. Bess is soon complaining that she's only re received 850 of that 2000 there's one possibility also that Shrewsbury was mentally unwell. His son, Gilbert, reports that his father has a swelling, possibly that's on the brain. And he also seems to have had a mistress, his housekeeper, Eleanor Britton, for several years. But he's constantly referring to his wife as a wicked and malicious a woman of base parentage. And, you know, it's a very troubled marriage. You can imagine that she was probably pretty glad when eventually he died in 1590 and she inherited one third of the disposable lands he'd owned at the time of their marriage. And that's when she finally starts to build this house, Hardwick, which is a sort of testament to all that she's survived. Before I leave, I wanted to bring you up here. You might hear it's a bit blustery. I am on the top of Hardwick Hall. This is special access. You can get this if you go on an exclusive tour. I'm walking on a walkway that is over the leads and Bess would have brought her guests here to walk on the leads themselves across the top of this roof and she would have been taking them to the south end of the hall where there is a banqueting house and so one of the turrets at the top of the house there is a room designed for that final course of a feast where a small number of guests come and get to eat the sweet meats, the candied fruit and all of those things that make up a banquet. If you want to know more about that, I did a podcast a couple of years ago with Brigitte Webster about banquets. And this is what Beth is bringing them to, to show them the final extent of her wealth. Here, she's queen of all she surveys. After Shrewsbury died, Bess lived for another 18 years, and 16 of them were lived here at Hardwick, back downstairs now, as you can hear, different set of stairs. And much of that time was spent dealing with troubles with Arbella. I think there's a sense that the possibility that she was going to become queen really ruined Arbella, actually. And she became very demanding, was involved in various intrigues, and really came to despise her grandmother. In the end, Arbella's claim to the throne came to nothing. James took the throne in 1603 on Elizabeth's death without a problem. And it's only really then, I think, that Bess has five years of peace before her own death in 1608. And she died here in her bedchamber on the 13th of February, 1608. How then should we think about her great house and her achievements? Well, this is a woman who managed to challenge all the restrictions on female wealth and power in the 16th century. A married woman could not own property. 
Yet Bess got round that by things being put in her name, by putting things in her son's name. She was considered a trusted pair of hands by her many husbands until finally Shrewsbury and she fell out. Me, even at this distance, with all the evidence that we have, the reasons for that seem somewhat opaque. But she built this house as a testament to what she had done, what she had achieved. And I love the fact she put it right next to the old hall, where she had grown up, where she had known instability, and said, look here, here I am, on top of this hill, her ES, her Countess's coronet, proclaimed across the countryside for all to see. my producer Rob Weinberg, my researcher Esther Arnott and Joseph Knight who edited this episode. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast and please rate rank bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen including on spotify it really helps more people find not just the tutors history is full of extraordinary people the tutors being just a handful In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.